podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast on Tuesday, November the 17th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at libertyshield.com and use my code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We want to get started today with a quick story about Wrexham, who have been taken over by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. McElhenney, best known for being the creator of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and Ryan Reynolds, obviously known for a lot of things, Deadpool being the kind of most recent big hit that he's had. Um, obviously, they're not a Premier League club, but it is nice to see a club who've been through the real ringer over the last few years getting this kind of boost with this sort of profile. It sounds like Reynolds and McElhenney are in this for real, like they are going to invest the money in the club and that they do have ambitions to grow the club. Wrexham have fallen massively into the shadow of Cardiff and Swansea in recent years, whereas you go back 30 years, they were knocking Arsenal out of the FA Cup. So this is a real opportunity for a club that have had to be reborn in many ways. Um, they've obviously been financially just in absolute horrors for years. They were owned by a supporters' trust for the last couple of years because of the financial issues they'd been through under previous owners. And this Phoenix club that they have now is is the the brand of the of the, the supporter. It's it's not something that came from their history. It was something they had to redo because of how much money they were in debt to the inland revenue and, and other uh, creditors. And now we see them kind of come full circle and they get this massive rush of publicity. They'll get, hopefully, solid investment. And hopefully it's something that can see the club grow from their National League status right now. Last season finished 19th out of 24. So, you know, not exactly where they want to be. But hopefully they can push on for promotion, turn things around there and and get themselves back into the Football League. It would be great to have a third Welsh team back in the Football League. They have been as high as the old third division, which is, I suppose, League One now um, in, in the past. And, you know, that'd be great. It'd be great to see them doing well again because the more we see these smaller clubs develop, the stronger the bottom pyramid, bottom tier of the pyramid becomes. And that can only be good for all levels of football. Uh, so massive credit to Ryan Reynolds and McElhenney. They do seem they do seem very excited by it. Um, their announcement video was was quite funny, uh, where they were bigging up the one of their main sponsors. So do check that out on their Twitter feed, on the Wrexham Twitter feed. It's it's really entertaining. But you know this can only be a good thing. It really can only be a good thing. And if the supporters trust are behind this, and it hasn't been done behind their back, then this is massive. Um. I want to talk about England for a second because they've gotten more bad news with Jordan Henderson and Raheem Sterling having withdrawn from the squad due to injuries. Henderson is a tight hamstring, I believe. 
Sterling, it's a little unclear as to what the issue is with Sterling. He obviously didn't play uh, against Belgium, whereas Henderson played the first 45. So again, for Liverpool, it's, you know, yet another injury that they now have to deal with, along with Andy Robertson, along with Joe Gomez, along with Mo Salah's COVID diagnosis, and along with all the other injuries they had going into the break. City, we've already seen Nathan Aki get hurt and now Raheem Sterling. So big blows for them as well. Um, and it is just, it strikes more at the point that these international breaks were a, a very poor decision. Um, Jose Mourinho had a very interesting post on Instagram, uh, which was, you know, quite stinging in his irony, I suppose is the best way to put it, uh, talking about how he only had six players available for training and how, you know, he was getting players back injured and things like that. I believe Youngman's son potentially has COVID as well. So that's a that's another one. You know, you, you can list these players down. Um, Mohamed Elneny of Arsenal has also been uh, tested positive for COVID. So it's every club. It's not just one or two. It is every club being affected by this. And there should never have been this international break. But England have a game against Iceland tomorrow night. It's the final game before Christmas for the national team, thankfully. And there's a lot of debate now over who should start and, and, you know, should Gareth Southgate be a little bit more adventurous than we've seen him be. And Jack Grealish is obviously at the the centre of a lot of this debate because he's played very well in the last two games. Even in the Belgium game where England were largely dreadful, Grealish was one of the few players that came out with a lot of credit. And some people are making the case that Jack Grealish needs to be an every-game starter for England, that he has to be in the first 11. And I have to say, I just don't see it. I really don't see it like that. I think when you look at at how England play, normally it's a 3-4-3. You would hope that we'll see more of a, of a back-four system as England go forward, because they don't need to be playing with three centre-backs. It doesn't aid them in the slightest. It doesn't suit any of their centre-backs, bar Kyle Walker. He's the only one of the defenders that actually suits. You could argue Connor Cody as well. He wouldn't be in the squad if they didn't play a back three. But England's two best centre-backs, well, they were Joe Gomez and Harry Maguire, but Gomez is now injured. So it's it's Harry Maguire plus one. It could well be Walker. Walker, I think, will be absolutely fine in a back four against most teams. But... I think Chilwell and Trent Alexander-Arnold, who are the nominal starting fullbacks, I think they're more suited to a back four as well. I think that allows them more space to move into than when they play as wing-backs and they're just naturally pushed higher up the field to begin with. I think it helps the midfield when they can go with either a 2-1 or a flat 3 rather than the midfield 2 they they play in the 3-4-3. Declan Rice and Jordan Henderson seem to be the favoured two. And then whoever that third midfielder is, you'd imagine Mason Mount. He is the the preferred choice by, it seems, Southgate and Frank Lampard at club level. So if it's Henderson, Rice and Mount in a midfield three, I mean, that's absolutely fine. That's something you can definitely bring into a major tournament. If you want to go 4-2-3-1, you could play Henderson and Rice as a two. It's not ideal. But then you could play Mount as the 10 in front and he'll still give you the same things his pressing, his energy, his off-ball movement, and his ability to find himself into the box and score goals. 
which is something we want to see him add back into his game. He had it at Derby. He's lost it a little bit under Frank Lampard because he's been asked to do, I suppose he's been asked to sacrifice more for the team. He's been asked to be more of a team player than someone who's one of the focal points of the team. And he's willing to do that, which is credit to him and a testament to him. But you want to see him add more goals back to his game. That is something that's going to be important for him as he moves forward in his development. In attack, though, I mean, there, there can be no debate. Raheem Sterling, Harry Kane, and Jaden Sancho all need to start. They are the three undeniable world-class players that England have at their disposal. Those three. They have to be in the team. So in a 4-3-3, there is no spot for Jack Grealish because he can't play as an attacking eight. We've seen that happen for Villa, and it's been a disaster. He, in a 4-3-3, the only position Grealish can play is from the left-hand side. The same in 3-4-3, he can only play from the left-hand side. And again, it has to be Sterling, Kane, and Sancho. Now, you could play 4-2-3-1 and play him as the 10 rather than Mason Mount. And that's absolutely fine. But isn't James Madison a better fit, a more natural fit as an out-and-out 10? Grealish hasn't really played as a 10 in quite a long time. So, for me, if I'm looking at it, and I want to play with a number 10, James Madison is the one I would go with. I think he's more of a natural fit as a 10. Now, I don't think 4-2-3-1 will get the best out of Raheem Sterling. I think Sancho will be absolutely fine. He's played a lot of 4-2-3-1 at, at Dortmund over his time there. But Sterling, for me, is better suited to 4-3-3. I think Kane is better suited to 4-3-3 as well. I think Henderson and Rice are better suited to 4-3-3. So, in my view, the only position that is really open in the front six is that left central midfield role. Henderson on the right, Rice is the six, and whoever plays on the left. In defence, Trent and Chilwell, I think, are locked in. Maguire's locked in. Pickford shouldn't be, but it seems like he is locked in, which means the only two positions now open in the England team are that left centre midfield role and that right, right side centre back role that was Joe Gomez's before he got hurt. They're the two positions England have open, and Jack Grealish obviously can't play as a centre back, and I don't feel like you can put him in that midfield position because, again, we've seen him play there for club, at club level, and it has not worked. Aston Villa are genuinely terrible when he plays in midfield. Just go and look at the results. Last season, I think he played there 11 times. I think they took four points in 11 games with him in midfield. And it's not all his fault, but it is the sacrifices that others have to make to make up for what he lacks in midfield. He's fine when he has the ball, but he only has the ball a very small percentage of the game. For me, Jack Grealish is going to be a good squad player for England. He'll be a creative source off the bench. If you're very attacking at some point, then you can bring him in. But he can't be a starter, not for me. I think you have to stick with what works, and you have to play your best players. And your best front three is Sterling, Kane, and Sancho. I don't even think Grealish is close to the level of those three. Now, some might disagree, but for me, they're all world-class. He's good, and he started this season very well. But this is a run of form. Until he does it for the entire season, this is only a run of form. And even the level he's displaying, it's not world class. So we need to wait and see more from Grealish. He needs to do more to earn the role. And look, even as well as he played, people came out of that Belgium game saying England lacked creativity. Well, isn't that what he's in the team to do? 
isn't that his role? So he he can't be both ways. Um, he's a good player. He's not a great player. He'll add creativity off the bench. I don't think he's a starter. Not if England want to have, you know, serious ambitions of winning uh, a major international tournament. Um, someone else who'll put up a big fight for a place in that team is Marcus Rashford. And if you've been a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I've praised Marcus Rashford a whole bunch of times for what he's been able to do and what he's accomplished over this past seven, eight months um, in terms of the school dinner program. You'd have heard me defend him yesterday after the Daily Mail took shots at him. But today, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, A little bit different, not massively different. So, at some point yesterday, Marcus Rashford retweeted, a quote tweeted, The Sun, with um, a comment along the lines of, this is what I was talking about when I said I'd been working on something. And the article in The Sun said it was an exclusive sit-down with Marcus Rashford to discuss his new project. Now, Rashford quickly deleted that tweet uh, and then retweeted Sky News, who had a similar story, but without the you know exclusive part. Um, basically, he's launching a book club so children can experience the escapism of reading and also to help tackle the problems with childhood literacy in the UK. There's a, there is a big problem in the UK, as there is in many countries with childhood liter- literacy. So Rashford wants to tackle that as his next project or alongside his current projects. And um, again, it's, it's commendable that he's doing this, but it's disappointing that he's spoken to the Sun. Now, what I will say is that just because they say something is an exclusive doesn't make it so. This has happened a bunch of times in the past where they've claimed something is an exclusive, but it's not at all. It's basically there's a media scrum. He answers a question from a journalist and they take that to mean an exclusive. He hasn't sat down with them one-on-one or anything of that nature. He hasn't addressed it. He deleted the tweet and hasn't addressed whether he did an exclusive interview with them or anything of that nature. Now, what I will say is if he has, he shouldn't have. He should know that the Sun are the type of newspaper that will attack him relentlessly if he does anything wrong. I think everybody's aware of why people shouldn't read the Sun. But for Rashford, I mean, look, the good outweighs the bad in this circumstance where he is doing something very, very good with Macmillan, um, Macmillan Books and... The interview, if there is an actual interview, which again, I don't believe there is, or I don't know that there is, doesn't outweigh how good that project is. So you would give him a pass just this once. One interview with that newspaper doesn't wipe out all the good work he's done. Some people call him things like Marcus Trash for yesterday. It's just absolutely dreadful to uh, to see people talk about him like that after what he's done this year. Let's give him a chance. He's a young guy. If he made a mistake, he made a mistake. He might not know the full connotations of why so many people are against that newspaper. He'll learn from this, and he'll he'll grow and get better. Right. Yesterday, I went through the top 10 as to how they've performed so far and how I think they'll be feeling about how they've performed so far. So 
we might as well keep going with that. We're number 11. We have Arsenal. Uh, four wins, four defeats, zero draws. Draws just not a thing Arsenal have any interest in this year. Just the nine goals scored. I think overall, they will be happy with what they've seen in parts, but disappointed with the overall arc of the season so far. There's no way they're going to be happy with four defeats. There's no way they're going to be happy with only nine goals scored, given the amount of money they've invested in attacking talent, given the big contract given out to Aubameyang before the season. It hasn't been ideal for Arsenal. Now, they've had a couple of good performances, a couple of good results, but you do have to look at this overall as a little bit of a disappointing start. A good result away to Fulham, 3-0 win on the opening day, but that's 33% of their goals in one game. Uh, 2-1 victory over West Ham. Things were looking up for Arsenal at that point. 3-1 defeat against Liverpool now. They were fairly comfortably beaten on the day, and it really could have been a lot higher. But, you know, it is what it is, away to the champions. They beat Sheffield United at home, as they should. Then, defeat to City and defeat to Leicester. They'll be disappointed in the last one for sure. They must be disappointed about the defeat to Aston Villa, but they did go to Old Trafford and beat Man United. But, in the last four games, they've only scored one goal. And that, that is of a concern. What we're seeing with this Arsenal team is that they're very passive. They're not they're not really trying to probe at defences. They're not really trying to pin teams back. They have very specific patterns of play that they seem to work through. And when those don't work, they seem to just cycle back and start over again. There's no real thrust to this Arsenal team right now. There's no aggressive nature to this Arsenal team. Now, I think that will grow as Thomas Partey becomes more at home. But what we need from Arteta is more of an aggressive game plan, more of a proactive game plan. A lot of times we see Arsenal as a reactive team where defensively they're set up to react to what the opposition do. That's why he plays the back three. So he has that extra man there. Arsenal aren't forcing the issue. They're not putting themselves in the front foot. They're playing as a counterpuncher. And they do have the players to take advantage of that in the likes of Aubameyang and Nicolas Pepe, but Pepe's not getting in the team at the moment. And they lack someone to play that killer pass, that final pass on a counter-attack. It's why I think they, they chased um, Awar all summer, but they were un- unsuccessful in getting him. Now, they do have Danny Ceballos. He could maybe perform that role, but he is... When you saw him at Real Betis, he had that in his game. He was a very creative passer. He's, I don't want to say dumbed down his game or numbed down his game, but he's hes taken a lot of that creativity out of his game over the last couple of years and become more of a workhorse in midfield, which is admirable and is certainly you know the way to get forward if you don't have the elite level of talent that you know, like an Eden Hazard or somebody has. But for Tobias, it's interesting just to see how he's transformed his career over the last few years. I think for Arsenal to be successful this year, they're going to need Tobias in the team regularly. Whether that's in a 3-4-3 or a 4-3-3, I think he has to be in midfield with Tomas. And he has to be the one who can provide that link to the front three. 
it has to come from him. He is the one creative passer they have. Because while Jack is a decent passer, he's not a creative passer. Elneny's not a creative passer. Tomas is not a creative passer. These things have to come from him. They have to come from Danny Ceballos. And Arsenal's season is going to rely heavily on him stepping up to the plate and performing well. Uh, Arsenal won't be happy with where they are right now. They'll be happy with you know cer- certain aspects. Defensively, they've been quite good. They'll be happy with the win over United. They'll be happy with how competitive they were against City, but they won't be happy with how how passive they've been and how the results have gone for them. West Ham in 12th will be very happy. Uh, West Ham had a horrendous first run of games, and there were major doubts over whether they could take any points. After they lost to Newcastle on the opening day, they had a really, really tough run of games where they played Arsenal and they lost. But then they had um, West Ham, Leicester, Tottenham, Man City. All teams that finished well above them last year, all teams with ambitions of Champions League football. They hammered Wolves. They hammered Leicester. They fought back incredibly well to get a 3-3 draw against Tottenham. They got a draw against Man City, which was a very big shock. They lost to Liverpool, um, but then they bounced back and beat Fulham. So at 11 points, they'll be very, very happy. I think relegation is the, or avoiding relegation rather, is the name of the game for them this season. So I think they have a very specific target of points in mind. It's likely to be 40. That's generally more than enough to keep you up these days. And they're already a quarter of the way through. So I think they're going to be really happy with how they've played so far. The injury to Mikel Antonio is a bit of a concern. Hopefully he's back for them quite soon because he's super important to them. But all things considered, they have to be happy with where they are right now. I think the midfield pair of Rice and Suchek is something they're going to be able to build off. As long as they can keep hold of Declan Rice, there's question marks over how long that will be for. But those two and that back three, that gives them a solid base to play from. Kufal, the right back they brought in, and Masawaka, who's back and playing left back, have been very, very impressive. And Pablo, Pablo Fornals has kicked on a level, and he's been good for them. So as long as they can keep this momentum going, pick up points where they should, pick up the odd win that you wouldn't expect them to get, they're going to be more than fine, and they're probably going to end up mid-table. They'll be very, very happy with, with what they've done so far. Now, with West Ham, there is always the possibility that it falls apart. Last season... Great first seven, collapsed. Great last save, last seven to save themselves. So there is that possibility. There is the possibility we come back out of this international break and they're just all over the place. We've seen it with them before. They've got Sheffield United next who need to win that game. They've got an inform Aston Villa. They've got a desperate Manchester United who need to win that game. They've got Leeds who will want to really start picking up points again after a bad recent run. So that's four tough games coming up. But on the flip side, the four games West Ham could realistically win. And then they've got they've got Palace then. So that's five. That is five tough games, but also five games they could win. I don't think they win all, all five of them, but they could win two. They could win three. So there's points to pick up there. If they come out of the break in the form they went into it, you'd imagine they pick up seven to nine points from those five games. If they do that, I think they're going to be fine. They come out of it and pick up none or one or two. Then we might have to start marking them down as a team in trouble because at some point 
Sheffield United and Burnley are going to start picking up points. At some point, Fulham will start to win a couple of games. And West Ham just can't afford to get dragged into the relegation battle. So you'd question the mentality, whether they're strong enough. Not in terms of the players, in terms of the manager, whether he's got the strong enough mentality to deal with a relegation battle. And whether the owners have the belief in that manager or whether they'll panic and make a change. And if they make a change, it can obviously go one of two ways. It can obviously go very well or it'll go very badly. There's no middle ground when you make a change mid-season. It goes either really well or really badly. Um, after that is Newcastle. And again, they'll be really happy with where they are so far. They'd like to score a few more goals, you'd imagine. And with Callum Wilson out for the next couple of weeks, that's going to be a big blow for them. But all things considered, it's been a good start for Newcastle. They've had a couple of good results. The new signings they brought in close to the, the end of the window have all worked out very well. And I really like the idea of converting Jacob Murphy into a wing-back. I think he's done really well there. So you can't really argue with what Steve Bruce has done. I mean, he did really well last season. He's repeating the trick this year. You would hope he keeps it up. Um, I, I've always had a fond, fondness of Newcastle. I think they're a club that deserve better ownership than they've currently got. I think it's a fan base that deserves more success than they've had. And I mean, more success would be any success, really. But um, for Newcastle thus far, I mean, three wins, two draws, ten goals scored. They'd like to score more goals. Like I said, that's the one area that they need to pick up on. Need to start scoring a few more goals. The only teams that have scored less than them this season so far, are Wolves, Arsenal, and the bottom four. So they'll want to pick that up. They'll want to become a little bit more adventurous. But with Miguel Almiron, with St. Maximum, with Ryan um, Ryan Fraser, you'd imagine the chance creation volume will go up and up and up. Hopefully, Jolington can find a little bit of form this season, maybe add a few more goals to his game. But Callum Wilson's, like I said, he's started the season really well, and when he comes back, You'd expect he'll get more goals than um, the team who will be most disappointed in their start so far will be Man United. I don't think they in any way thought they would be sitting in 14th place with 10 points after seven games and three defeats already. And in truth, it could be worse. It really could be worse. They have been diabolical in the league. Uh, opening day defeat to Crystal Palace. Uh, 3-1 did not in any way flatter Crystal Palace. They beat Brighton in a game they should have lost comfortably. Uh, Brighton hit the post about five times. United needed a penalty given after the final whistle had blown uh, to get the win. They really should have lost that game. Uh, they deserved to lose the game, but they did get the win, so that gave them three points. Then they got walloped by uh, by Tottenham. A comprehensive beating. I mean, you, you don't really see too many times where a club at home get beaten like that and it, it really wasn't pretty and it could have been worse they did go to Newcastle and play well for the last 20 minutes that is the that was the one bright spot uh, until recently and even that last 20 minutes I mean it was 1-1 in the 86th minute then Fernandez scores then Wan-Bissaka scores then Rashford scores well into injury time but I mean for 70 minutes there that game was uh, an atrocity it really was an atrocity. It wasn't something you'd want to watch. The Chelsea game was awful. They were awful against Arsenal. They did play well against Everton. That was the first time they can really look at themselves and say that's a good performance for 90 minutes. Now, they've got West Brom up next. That's 
a definitely winnable game at home. You would expect them to win that game. But then they go to Southampton, which won't be easy at all. Um, especially given they're, they've got PSG in the Champions League a couple of days later. So they may well have their focus on that. Then they've got West Ham. Then they've got City. And then again, they've got that Sheffield United team who are going to be desperate for results. Then they've got Leeds. Then they've got Leicester. Then they've got Wolves. Then they've got Villa. It is a really tough run for United up until New Year's. It really is a difficult run of games. West Brom and West Ham and Sheffield United, as things stand, are the three games you would look at and say, well, they should win them. But the rest will be difficult. I mean, yes, they should be a better team than Southampton, but Southampton are in great form. Yes, they should be a better team than Leeds, but Leeds play this bizarre style that is very difficult for certain teams to deal with. And I think it will be difficult for United to deal with. United don't deal well when pressed. They're not a team that's comfortable playing out from the back. Lindelof, Maguire, and Wan-Bissaka are all prone to giving the ball away when pressed. The midfield is a little bit slow. It may... It may struggle to deal with the uh, the dynamic nature of how Leeds play in midfield. I think Leicester will give them an awful lot of problems. Villa, I think, will give them problems. I'd expect them to beat Wolves because there's just something about Wolves where they, they continually let you down in a big game. So I, I think United are going to struggle. I, I, I really do think they'll struggle to New Year. And they could turn it around. There's no question they have the talent to do it. Whether they have the manager or not, I don't know. But, you know, they've got... Champions League games, they've got uh, the EFL quarterfinal against Everton thrown in there. It's a it's a lot of you know weekend midweek weekend midweek the whole way through. So we'll wait and see how they do. We'll have to wait and see how they do. Uh, but they won't be happy at all with how things have started. And you would imagine the pressure is is solidly on Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer right now. Uh, next up is Leeds. There's two sides of this. As a newly promoted team, they'll be happy to be 15th. They'll be happy with 10 points. But as a team that spent the amount of money they spent, as a team that has the manager that they have, and a team that started the way they started, I don't think they're going to be happy. They obviously lost to Liverpool. Then they beat uh, Fulham. They beat Sheffield United. They drew with City. They lost to Wolves, but then they bounced back and beat uh, Aston Villa quite comfortably. The last two games, hammered by Leicester, and it really could have been more than 4-1, and then really badly beaten by Crystal Palace. That would be massively disappointing to them. That would be massively disappointing to them. And they've got Arsenal next, then Everton, then Chelsea. That is a really tough run of games. They're going to have to do something different. Something's going to have to change there. They cannot continue to be as open defensively as they have been I know Bielsa insists on this really aggressive man-to-man plan that he has, but sometimes you just don't have the players. And yes, those players were fine in the championship, but this is a much higher level. And I think there's individuals in that Leeds team that have come up with them that are getting found out a little bit this season so far. Uh, they won't be happy, I don't think, overall with where they are. But if you told them, look, you'll be leveling points at Man United, I think they'd have taken that. Um, the most disappointing team for me have been Brighton, and I think they will be disappointed in themselves. But not so much with performances as just with results. I mean, opening day of the season, they outplay Chelsea, somehow turn around and lose uh, 3-1. Then they beat Newcastle. 
comfortably in Newcastle. Really good performance, really good result. That game I mentioned against United where they completely outplayed them and were very, very unfortunate. They were beaten 4-2 by Everton, but again, put up a a semi-decent performance. Got a good point against um, Crystal Palace away, but they won't be happy at all with the with the draw against Brighton, and they won't be happy with the draw against Burnley. The defeat against um, Tottenham, I think they'll take. Tottenham are one of the best teams in the league. But those two games, those last two games, they won't be happy at all with those draws. I think they'll feel aggrieved not to have more points from the early games. There's nothing you can do about that now, but those two recent games, they really could have done more. I think they're paying the price for not addressing their needs in the summer. I think the signing of Danny Welbeck was, I, I mean, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't good. They went clearly went for a bit of more experience this summer with Lalana, with Veltman, with Welbeck. Veltman has been okay. The other two haven't really worked out so far. Lalana's had a couple of good flashes here and there, but the system doesn't really suit Adam Lalana. To get the best of Lalana, you probably need to play 4-3-3. Now, they've played 3-5-2 a couple of times, and that's worked a little bit better, but he needs to play in the midfield three. Doesn't work in the midfield two. Doesn't work in the front three. So you're going to have to find a balance there somewhere if you want to have him in your team. Now, I don't know why Alexis McAllister's not starting ahead of him as things stand if they're going to continue to play this fourth, uh, 3-4-3 shape. But the signing of Wildbeck was bizarre. He He's never been a goal scorer, and he certainly wasn't going to add goals to this team. All he does is miss sitters, so... You know, it's just a bad move by them. They should have gone and addressed their needs in the summer. They wanted Darwin Nunes. They wanted Nico Gonzalez. They couldn't get either, and they didn't sign anybody else. That makes no sense. How do you not have a backup plan? How is it that you're willing to spend $25 million on Darwin Nunes, and when you can't get him because he goes to Benfica, you don't have anyone else to sign? I don't understand that. I never understood this mentality of clubs. Well, if you don't get our guy, we're just not going to sign anybody. How do you not have a list? What is your scouting department doing? And Brighton have such a great analytics department. And that is who will have found Darwin Nunes, who's playing in uh, second division in Spain last year. Surely they had others on the list. They have to have had. So how have they not gone and signed someone else? Absolutely bizarre decision by them. They needed to bring in a left wing back as well. Sally March is okay, but he's not going to move the needle for you. You, everything's going in the right-hand side. Lamptey's being overworked. He's been kicked out of games. I think we've already seen him taken off twice this season, having been just kicked into the air a bunch of times. They needed to find that balance, and they didn't do it. Ryan Sessegnon was available on loan all summer long. He would have been perfect. Didn't move from. Uh, I thought Brighton were going to be good this season. They haven't been. And um, to me, they're in, they're in big trouble this year. I think there's real potential for them to go down this year now. And it's really disappointing because Graham Potter's a good manager. They're a really well-run club. But unless they turn around in January and do some proper business, they're in big trouble. Uh, another club that could be in bother is Fulham. Um, one win from eight games. But at least they have one win, uh, unlike the three teams below them. But again, they'll be disappointed. They've spent a lot of money. The Khan family are very ambitious. They had a lot of missteps during the summer in terms of the players they tried to sign and and some of the failures that they had. But what you can say about Fulham is that if it weren't for a couple of penalties 
they will be much better off. The penalty against Sheffield United when Mitrovic decides to kick the leather off the ball, hits the crossbar and it ends up nearly leaving Bramall Lane. And then the penalty in the last minute against uh, West Ham where Adam Luckman does whatever it was he was doing. Win those two games and they've got three more points than they currently have. And then they're above Brighton. But I, I still have massive doubts over Scott Parker. I still think he's probably the favourite to be first one sacked. Uh, just with the, the track record of the owners. You look at who they've got next. Everton, Leicester, Man City, Liverpool. I mean, that is just... That's really tough. It's tough to see any points from those four games. And that will mean that after 12 games, they'll have four points. They sacked the manager, Jukanovic, the last time after a better run of 12 games. So, no, not much better. I think he had five points or six points. But either way, it's not looking good for, for Scott Parker. It's not looking good for um, for Fulham. That game on the 15th of December where they play Brighton, that's looking like a massive one. Massive, massive game. Don't expect much from Fulham over the next little while. But they've got good players. I mean, they did loan in a bunch of players. The problem with loans, you're never fully sure how much commitment you're going to get from the players. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, West Brom in 17th, again, they'll be disappointed. But, I mean, they're newly promoted. They didn't spend a whole bunch of money. They didn't address their defence, and that has been their big undoing. 17 goals conceded this season. It's the most in the league. Not surprising, given the the lack of quality in defence. But the midfield is solid. Defense, the attack is quite good. They need to go out in January and address that back four. They really just, they have to go and address that back four. They need at least two players in. At least two players in. There's no way around it. Burnley will be horrified at their current predicament. 19th, zero wins, two draws, three goals scored. 12 conceded. Sean Dyche will be pulling what's left of his hair out. Um, he will be cursing the the board who refused to back him in the summer. He will be tramping around the place, kicking things, scaring people. And they've dug themselves a big old hole. They really have dug themselves a big old hole that they've got to climb out of now. Now, you would still back them to be, you know, to end the season in the lower regions of mid-table. Um, but they've got to start winning games and they've got Palace next then City away then Everton that Palace game is huge it really is huge because after that it's Arsenal Villa both of them away Wolves Leeds away Sheffield United at home and Fulham at home so there's a handful of games there that you'd look at and say are winnable. But they've got to win them. They've got to beat Palace. They've got to beat Sheffield United and they've got to beat Fulham. They've got to pick up a couple of draws from the other six. Between now and Christmas, they need to pick up some points. Or they're Because if they go into the, the new season, still in the bottom three, or this new season, sorry, into the new year, still in the bottom three, then they're, they're really going to be in trouble. Because you know they won't buy in January. They might buy one, won't be anything too expensive. Now, unless they unless they panic a little bit and decide to throw a bit of money at the problem, which would be a very unfulfilling thing to do, but needs must. Um, 
but that is that is a horrible run of games after the Palace one. Even that Palace game is not easy at all. Palace are top half, but City, Everton, Arsenal, Villa, the form Villa are in, uh, Wolves and, and Leeds, that is not a, a fun run of games at all for Sean Dyche and his boys. But like I say, they'll be horrified by where they are. And so will Sheffield United, uh, who've been even worse. Uh, one point from eight games, four goals scored. It is absolutely shocking how bad they've been this year. And it's not like a thing that you can point at games and say, oh, they were a little unlucky here and they were a little unlucky there. The one point they have, they shouldn't have. Fulham gifted it to them by missing a penalty and then giving them a late penalty, a completely unnecessary uh, foul committed by, again, by Mitrovic, who just you know kicked the leather off the ball. Um, but, I mean, you know, beaten 2-0 by Wolves, that game was over after six minutes. They showed no real fight. Lost 1-0 to Villa. That was a little bit unlucky. They had the man sent off very early. You know, it's tough to play for 80 minutes with, with 10 men. Um, didn't really didn't really show anything, in the, you know, against Leeds, against Arsenal. Gave Liverpool a good game, I have to say. They did give Liverpool a good game. But then, you know, lost to City, rolled over for Chelsea. The, the performance against Chelsea was awful genuinely awful scored that early goal and then just kind of gave up so they scored got ahead and just gave up um they spent 50 million 60 million in the summer Jaden bogle max low ollie burke aaron ramsdale and Rian brewster that lot didn't come cheap i'd imagine chris wilder's under pressure internally now that that may not leak out but i would imagine he is under some pressure whether they'd be stupid enough to sack him or not i don't think so um I think they'll they'll stick with him regardless. He brought them from League One. You have to give the guy, you know, you have to give the guy plenty of support. They'll probably buy again in January. I, I think they'll be a club that will try and throw money at the pro at the problem. But it is a big problem to be eight games in and have one point is a big problem. To play the way they're playing, to show the lack of desire that they showed last time out. And not just last time. I mean, against City as well, there was just no desire in that team. It is a big problem. They they need to. This international break is gonna is gonna be massively important to them. Wilder needs to get right into their heads. He needs to really get them amped up to come flying out of the box for the next game. If they don't, they're going to be in trouble. They really are going to be in trouble. Like, obviously, it's not an ideal situation. But after eight games, you're not really in the mess just yet. You're in a hole. You're not quite through yet. Them and Burnley need to sort themselves out. I mean, it's embarrassing for them two to be there. Ninth and 10th last season in the league. 20th and 19th this season. Just, it's unacceptable. Burnley, it's not a massive surprise given the lack of spending, but it is a lack of surprise given the manager, given the quality of some of the players in the squad. Now, I know they've had injuries, but it's not like they had a massive injury uh, in injury list. They had a couple of injuries and just completely sapped their squad. Uh, we'll wrap up with some gossip. Um, Manchester United remain interested in signing Jaden Sancho and are trying to secure a deal to bring the player to the club before the European Championships. Not going to happen. Let's just write that off. It's not going to happen. Dortmund are not going to sell him before the Euros when they know that if he goes to the Euros and does really well, his price is going to go up. United had their opportunity and they blew it. And they never even got close to actually sealing the deal. 
Parasan, these two are brilliant. Parasan Germain will make a bid for Real Madrid and Spain defender Sergio Ramos. Why not? Of course, of course they will. Any has been, they'll have him. Um, uh, and tied to that, they're also trying to secure extensions for killing Mbappe and Neymar. And Neymar might stay there because he doesn't seem to have any real ambition. But Mbappe does, and why he would stick around when he sees you bringing in Sergio Ramos, I have no idea. Uh, Celtic are interested in signing Dean Henderson on loan in January. That would make sense. Uh, he needs first-team football. He needs to be playing regularly. There's a couple of Premier League clubs that could do with him as well. United might not be willing to let him go there, though, because they're bottom-half rivals. Um, Barcelona are considering a move for Skrodan Mustafi. I mean, how is it that you can be dreadful in the Premier League and potentially get a move to Barcelona? And I know he was good at Valencia, but he was good at Valencia because Otamendi carried him. He has always been a bad defender. If he is actually on their list, that would be that would be hilarious. Inter Milan and Barcelona are interested in Ginny Wijnaldum, though the Reds have offered the 30-year-old a new contract to stay at Anfield beyond this season. His deal is up in the summer, and... Um, he, he'd be a big loss to Liverpool, and I, I do think he's going to go. I think he would have gone in the summer if they'd been if they'd been willing to uh, to sell him. I think he would have he would have moved. But um, if I was him, of those two, Inter are the better team, but Barca is probably the better way of life. More of a Dutch kind of edge to that Barca team and Barca culture, anyway. So yeah, I mean, look, he'll have he'll have his pick of clubs. Arsenal, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid and AC Milan are in the race to sign Dominic Sosbalaya. I believe there's other clubs in that as well. I think um, Red Bull Leipzig are in. I believe Liverpool are in for him. I believe Manchester United have interest. There's Real Madrid. Oh yeah, Real Madrid's mentioned. There's a bunch of clubs. Everybody wants him. He is ridiculously talented. Manchester United and Arsenal remain keen on Usman Dembele, who's 18 months left on his contract at Barcelona. He turned Man United down in the summer, quite publicly and quite embarrassingly. So it would be strange if they do still think they can sign him. Um, maybe they can. Maybe they can. But um, he won't come cheap, and he hasn't really done a whole lot at Barca. Miguel Almiron's agent says he's ready to leave Newcastle and probably would have done in the summer if not for the disruption caused by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm not sure what to make of that. Is he saying he's ready to leave and go to a bigger club? Because he hasn't really performed well enough to get a move to a bigger club. Maybe he's ready to go back to the MLS, where he can be a star again. But, I mean, I think inconsistent is the word you'd use. Disappointing is one of the words you'd use to, to describe his time at Newcastle. And he's in the team, like he's a regular starter, but I really don't know what to make of that. That is strange. Um, West Ham are still interested in James Tarkowski, but are refusing to meet Burnley's valuation for the 27-year-old. I believe Burnley's valuation is massively tied to the fact that Brentford have a sell-on clause, which entitles them to like 25% of the overall fee that he sold to, not the profit, but the overall fee. So I, I believe that's one of the reasons that Burnley are refusing to lower their value. Uh, St. Etienne are considering a move for Islam Slamini. 
in the summer or in January rather and uh, I mean he has been a disaster for for Leicester an absolute disaster for Leicester but he is a good player and he's done well elsewhere so it would make sense he's done well in France before so there'd be it would make sense for Leicester I think it's just a matter of getting him off their books he's on good money um, but he's probably got very little value now in the transfer market um, Adam Traore I mentioned this yesterday how he believes he's not starting because he hasn't signed his Contract extension, but his current deal runs to 2023, so they should be starting him anyway. Um, Manchester United have been linked with Sporting Braga's Portuguese defender David Carmo. He's meant to be very, very talented. I haven't seen him, but he's meant to be very... Recently, Braga recently doubled his buyout clause to £40 million, which is an excessive amount for a 20-year-old defender with so little experience. Um, he's been dubbed the next Van Dijk. But, I mean, that that doesn't really mean anything. He's played 23 senior games. Uh, I think I think United would be wise to try and get him for less than that buyout clause. 40 million would be an awful lot of money to spend on such an unproven defender who hasn't even played under, 20, under 21 level for his uh, national team yet. So that, to me, would be of a concern. That, to me, would be of a concern that he hasn't played under-21 level or senior level. And it's not like Portugal are flush with top-class centre-backs. Pepe is still playing for them regularly. Jose Font is the regular starter. So, that would be of a concern to me. Um, Chelsea are aiming to sell a number of players to fund the move for Declan Rice. I went through this the other day, and I, I just don't see the players they have that they could sell, that they... They don't use like the players that Lampard likes, the players that are in his regular regular rotation. I just don't see there's enough outside of that for them to raise much towards uh, signing Declan Rice. Uh, Leicester have opened talks with Johnny Evans over a new contract to be well deserved. He's been tremendous since joining. He's one of the most underrated players I think in the league. Definitely one of the most underrated defenders. Australian side Melbourne victory want to sign Rudy Gestete who previously played for Cardiff, Blackburn, Aston Villa, and Middlesbrough. He is brilliant in the air and absolutely hopeless at everything else. He is such a strange player. Utterly hopeless at everything except aerial duels. Brilliant in that in that regard. Uh, Barca are willing to sell four players in the summer. Junior Firpo, the left-back. Samuel Umtiti, the centre-back. Matthias Fernandez, the midfielder. And Martin Braithwaite. Braithwaite they only signed because... They got a special dispensation to allow them to sign someone out to the transfer window. And he was all they could get at the time. He, he was never a Barcelona caliber player. Don't know how much they'll get for him. Matthias Fernandez is a weird one. They, I think they signed the wrong player, is my honest opinion there. I, I don't think he's who they intended to sign when they signed him. Samuel Mtiti went fit as one of the best centre-backs in the world, though. And there's a lot of Premier League clubs that could really do with looking at him. Spurs, for example, who I think need an upgraded centre-back. Toby Alderweireld and Samuel Mtiti would be a really, really good pairing. That's a pairing that can win you the league. Liverpool could potentially look at him. Depending on the price, Liverpool could look at him because he'd be a great short-term replacement for Van Dijk while Van Dijk is that injured. would mean you don't have to rush Van Dijk back. And then when Van Dijk is back, you've got... 
top, top centre-back sitting on the bench. I quite like the idea of that. You could also play a back three. Virgil could shift to the right-hand side in certain circumstances, and you could play them together. I, I think he's a tremendous player. It would depend on price, though. That's the big thing. He's had some injuries, but um, if you could get him at the right price, I think it would be worth taking gamble on. And Junior Firpo is an interesting one because when he was at Betis, he was really exciting, really entertaining, and a lot of clubs seemed interested in him. But he didn't really kick on when he went to Barcelona. Never really got the opportunity. Was you know has always been kind of sub to Jordi Alba. So Mtiti's current mar- uh, market value on transfer market is eighteen million a day. They do tend to be a bit skewed, but if that, I mean, if, if Barcelona wanted like 20, 25 million, I think that would be a bargain move for Liverpool. Uh, his contract is, 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 does run until 2023. So I think Barca would want, would want more, but then they've barely played him in the last year and a half. He's an interesting one for sure. Uh, yeah. Junior Firpo is an interesting one. Um, because like I say, he was really highly rated a couple of years ago. So you'd imagine there'd still be, a lot of clubs interested. So with Firpo, with Amtiti, they probably could raise a decent bit of money. I don't think they'll get much for the other two, if I'm being honest. I don't think they'll get much for the other two. And that's it. That is all our news for today. That is our show. Uh, thank you to producer Guy, as always. Thank you to Fox Hunt for the title music. And thank you to you, as always, for listening. Do tell a friend. Do spread the word um, in these coronavirus times where there are not commuters. We're, you know, trying to grasp at every listener we can and grow this show so if you could help be much appreciated um tell a friend tell a cousin tell whoever you know just do your bit <laughs> um until then i will see you tomorrow uh Noli scott this week because he is flat out with work ahead of the january transfer window but um we'll have something you know we never let you down that's what we do here we don't let you down Uh, We don't do much else, but we don't let you down. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.